We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host Nick Falato. Today we're here to recap the Giants' first mandatory mini cap practice. This is one of two. They've got one more, and then there is a massive break happening. But we won't talk about Giants football until we'll be talking a lot about it, but we won't see any Giants football on the field until late July. So some things to take away from today's practice we want to discuss today. Some interesting movement as far as which players are starting and working with the first team offense, which players are not, which players are making plays. Remember, we always say, Nick and I, we like to say, Take the plays and take the production in these mini camp practices with a grain of salt. Training camp's a little bit better in that regard. But again, not much hitting, a lot of seven on seven. But there's still interesting nuggets to take away from who's pre- practicing and playing with the first team offense. So, Nick, before we get into any of that, we haven't talked in a while. So, how was your weekend, buddy? And, and are things going well for you? Things are going excellent. You look tanner, for me, by the way, you look like you got some sun cool. this week. Yeah, I I just go outside and I just become really tan, but <laughs> I haven't really gone to the beach or anything crazy like right. that. I was in Vegas, though, but we already talked about that. I actually went to the movies, Dan, place where you do not get a tan. And I saw About My Father with uh, Sebastian Maniscalco's film with Robert De Niro. And I got to say, you know, I'm not a big movie guy. My girlfriend is. I'm not. But I, I enjoyed it. It was a good movie, you know, talked about my Sicilian roots. So I, I enjoyed it. Nice. I had a weekend where I traveled down to Florida to see the Stanley Cup game. Unfortunately, the Panthers lost my one of my best friends in life, Jordan Kovacs, moved down there. He is diehard Panthers fan, as diehard as we are about the Giants, crazy extent. And we just unfortunately couldn't get the win. I know you you were rooting for Vegas earlier in the series, and you went to a game yeah. in Vegas. It's sort of. I just want good yeah. hockey. You just want a good hockey, rooting for the home team. I think part of the issue for the Panthers is it's, Kachuk is just not healthy anymore, and he's just play, he played like no, none of the third period, which is like a disaster, and you can't win without Kachuk. Kachuk is like – that's like if the Giants lost Dexter Lawrence or Andrew Thomas. You're just not going to – you can't replace that kind of value. But I did have two first-world problem issues. My flight down to um, West Palm Beach. We're 12 minutes away. It says 12 minutes on duration. And we hear, oh, there's some thunderstorms in the area. And you know anyone who lives down there or has lived down there or visits there knows there's like thunderstorms in the area. Okay, it's fine. Pilot goes, don't worry. We're going to circle around for 15 minutes, maybe 20, and everything's going to be all right. They're not going to last here. They circle around. 35 minutes later, he says, we're running out of fuel. We need to make an emergency stop in in Fort Myers. We're going to fuel right up. And then it's another 25 minutes back to West Palm. Okay, fine. This is my issue, though, Nick. You can't control the weather. I get it. And these are all first world problems. I understand. But when we get down and we do the emergency landing in Fort Myers, 
We wait another, and I counted on my phone, and this wasn't pointed out to me until some uh, a lady next to me on the plane made a really good astute point, and I wasn't even angry until she made this point. That's when I got, and I, didn't, I don't say anything. There were so many passengers in that plane who were like yelling at the flight attendants and being so rude and annoying. That's never me, and I hate people who do that. But in my head, and to this lady, because we were just like talking quietly to each other, I did get a little angry with her, like, not with her, with the situation, because she was like, Here's my point. Why did it, it took 65 minutes from the point where we did our emergency landing to get the fuel over? So why was that fuel tank not waiting for this plane before we landed? We had another like 20 minutes down to Fort Myers or whatever. Get that fuel tank ready. Why does it take 65 minutes to get a fuel tank over there? Anyway, double the trip on the way there, on the way back, and then hit another two-hour delay going to Newark. So it was just a devastating home and away, I called it, where double delay, almost double the trip in both ends, and just got crushed on both ends. But again, it's a first-world problem, like you said. Oh, it's absolutely a first-world problem. You should have flew United, you know? Maybe yeah. you wouldn't have had those issues. <laughs> You're damn right, and I normally do. So that might be the last JetBlue fight. No, I don't. they might be a sponsor at some point. JetBlue was great. Besides that, they were great. Um, just, you know, you can't control some of these things. Get that fuel tank ready, though. If you know you're doing an emergency landing or whatever, why is it 65 minutes extra to get a fuel tank over there? That's just something I can never quite understand. But we're here to talk about Giants. We're here to talk about minicamp today, Nick. So let's dive into some of the notes we got um, from some of the beat writers in attendance. And then from our, you know, a friend of the show, reoccurring guest, John Schmelk, who we had on recently, just a couple months ago. So here are some notes from John Schmelk, and we can go through them one by one. Bill Parcells made an appearance at practice and addressed the team afterwards. He said, I want to just, uh, and when they asked Daniel Jones, what did he, what was the message? And he said, it's all about accountability. He says, you know, talking about what makes a team great and what tests the team goes through in a season, staying close together, close knit, taking accountability for your role in the team. And he thinks it's a great message. And I will say this, Nick, I feel like this Giants team really does have a lot of that togetherness and really does have a lot of that close knit feel to them that is important is there for basically every single Super Bowl team ever. Like, yes, sometimes there's just insanely talented rosters out there that win a Super Bowl. And it's just like, all right, there was no way to stop that quarterback when he got hot in the postseason or whatever it may be. Um, but I feel like a lot of the Super Bowl teams you see are these tight knit, uh, you know, close knit tight groups. And I feel like it was a good message. And I'm happy the Giants are in that place right now. Absolutely. I mean, think about where the Giants were recently, Dan. It wasn't that long ago where we're like, dude, we have no identity. We have no culture whatsoever. We are kneeling down on the one yard line, the absolute joke of the NFL. And right now we have Bill Parcells coming in talking about accountability. And we know that that message is absolutely landing with Brian Dable and Joe Shane leading this ship. What did Bill Parcells used to say? The big tuna is like, you don't get any medals for trying. You get medals yeah results right and i think the giants at least right now have the framework to earn those medals but they got to keep trying you know and you're not going to get them until you actually get the results and who would have thought the giants would have win a playoff game last year that was out of the minds of so many people and year one they were able to do that yep so that was cool the giants focused today on situational football according to schmelk um and i know brian dable also mentioned this before that goal line run schemes end of game type scenarios, navigating clock management at the end of game, last second plays, desperation plays to try and score. I think all that stuff is cool. And it's a good, it's good that they're focusing on that. So more statue of Liberty type of runs. Yeah. Another oh pony God, package. Awesome. Oh, we're going to see that again, man. They're going to map Brita as the wing back. He's going to motion. You're going to hand the football off, maybe incorporate the triple option a little bit into the goal line with Daniel Jones and his legs. I mean, the, the sky's the limit right now for the giants when it comes to the X's and O's with these two offensive minds on staff. 
Yeah, and with this many options around them, they have such depth at wide receiver, which is super important. I know after practice, Sterling Shepard talked about how, you know, we brought a lot of competition in, a lot of bodies at receiver, but he's like, that was by design. And he's like, if you're not one of these people like I, and he, he didn't say like I am, but I know he was referring to himself. Like, I like the competition. I want the competition. I, you know, and that's a good thing. The Giants want that too. And at, leading into, you know, coming back to that, Today, it was, you know, we talked about last week, Jameson Crowder found a little connection with Daniel Jones and last week's set of OTAs, a, lot, a bunch of catches with Jameson Crowder. Even today, Emery Hunt, who was at minicamp, said he thinks Crowder is a big sleeper to make an impact in the passing game this year for the Giants. We keep hearing different names, though. We've heard a little bit of yeah. Hodgins' OTAs. We heard a little bit of Crowder from uh, last week and then today again with Emery Hunt. And then today, we hear a little bit more, and we heard a little bit of this last week, too, of wide receiver Paris Campbell, who was a frequent target of Daniel Jones today during practice. He caught a touchdown in this first seven-on-seven during the move the ball part of the 7-7 and the practice, according to John Schmelk, by the way. They had five connections, four straight targets at the beginning of the drive, which was pretty damn cool. And then he caught a pass on a short route that he kind of turned up on the sideline for what would have been an explosive play, according to John Schmelk. So I just love seeing different all the different receivers who have gotten involved so far. When the Giants signed Paris Campbell, what did we say, Dan? We were like, this is a player. If he can just stay healthy, we don't even know his ceiling right now. And I still maintain that with Paris Campbell. I mean, this is just mini camp. It's OTAs. It's not that big of a deal. But we know the talent is there. We know the athletic ability is there. We saw what he was able to do with Matt Ryan as his quarterback and Sam Ellinger as his quarterback last year. I really think he could have a huge role, especially if Sterling Shepard or Wondell Robinson can't get healthy and get on the football field. So Paris Campbell is definitely a name to pay attention to as we head into training camp. Yeah, I know you're I'm very excited about Campbell. And I think you're honestly just from and this is not you telling me this, Nick, it's just from doing this podcast with you long enough. You're even more excited about Campbell because I think a lot of the profile with Campbell is, you know, he's had a lot of injuries that may have kind of held back what what he could be actually capable of because he's still a super young player. And even last year, when we saw some of those plays, like the deep ball he caught against the Giants, like it looked like a player who was held back by also bad quarterback play. In addition to injuries that kind of sidelined him earlier in his career, just Really bad quarterback play last year, and he's going to get an improvement there as well. So Campbell could be a nice sleeper there. Uh, to close out that drive I referenced earlier, according to Schmelk, Jones found Darius Slayton on a deep ball, which is awesome to see. I believe that was against uh, rookie cornerback uh, Deontay Banks, though. Yeah, Deontay Banks got beat by a deep ball, according to Dan Duggan as well. But then I think Duggan said on the next play, Deontay Banks was able to come back and, and knock away a pass or at least have really sticky coverage on Isaiah Hodgins. And that's, I think, the story of Deontay Banks. That's what we're going to see. Look, these rookie cornerbacks don't come into the league and act like Sauce Gardner all the time. Like Even these really good cornerbacks like Patrick Sertan when he came out of Alabama, they struggle a little bit. We're going to see some struggles. You're going to have to just deal with it and hope that he has the mental toughness to get over it. I think that he does. At least that's what I, I put together through just watching his tape and some of the interviews that he has. And then we just got to see his best game. It's going to flourish eventually, but it might take a little bit of time. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And then speaking of Jameson Crowder, he had a pair of touchdowns, according to Schmelke, during the uh, seven on seven drills. Colin Johnson had a touchdown from Tyrod. I believe the Crowder might have been Jones. Uh, Jeff Smith tightrope the end line for a touchdown. David Sills caught a pair of touchdowns. And one play that stood out to Schmelk was Eric Gray, who was working with the third team, I believe. And he caught a short pass from Tommy DeVito and then kind of showcased that dynamic change of direction ability, according to Schmelk, to get into the end zone. Love to see it. And that's what we see from Eric Gray. Eric Gray is not the burner. We've said this several times, but he can make you miss in a phone booth. And that's very valuable. And think about last year, man. Matt Breida was excellent at that. How many third and one, fourth and one situations did Matt Breida get the football in a variety of different ways? And he was able to either fall through contact or make someone miss in a phone booth. I think Eric Gray can also do that. It's just Matt Breida, to me, adds another explosive type of element that Eric Gray lacks. 
And you're right because Breida did it in different ways too. I believe there were times he got skinny and got through like the, the, you know, the hole right in front of him. There were times he took it to the edge and I'm thinking back now, Nick, but I don't know if there was a single time when he got that opportunity that he didn't succeed in it and turn the play into a first down or turn the play into a positive down. I might be missing one. There might've been one. He t- I know there was one Barkley tried to take to the edge that he didn't get, but I'm not so sure that happened with Breida. So Breida remains a valuable piece in that regard. I agree. And I think Eric Ray, when I say lack of explosiveness, I think he's explosive, but he's just not explosive in terms of his ability to get long. That's really his his issue, right? He can make you miss, like I said, in those short, confined areas. And there is an explosive element to that. But it all comes down to, do you have the home run, grand slam, breakaway type of speed? And that's what he lacks. And then some interesting developments going on with the defense, I think. We're going to get to some more developments of the offense as well below. But we heard before practice, Jerome Henderson talk about his defensive backs. I'm going to get to that a little bit later. But... We saw today that, you know, it's not a mirage. The Giants are seriously considering McLeod at Nick McLeod at safety. And even Jerome Henderson, we're trying him at safety right now. We're using him at safety. And he got most of the first team reps. Despite him getting most of the first team reps, Bobby McCain, who they originally signed, we thought to play that starting role next to Xavier McKinney, although McLeod did it more today. And don't read too much into that because as we're going to get to in a little bit, you know, John Michael Smith wasn't with the first team offense today. I think he's going to eventually be with the first team offense without a doubt as the starter for week one. But right now he wasn't. So what does that mean? It's still early is what it means. But Bobby McCain, despite not getting those first team reps, jumped the pass for an interception in the red zone. And then later were knocked away a short pass. And then on the very next play, he got there a step sooner and uh, and took another interception a second of the day for a touchdown. So Bobby McCain with a huge day. Yeah, we don't want to read into it too much, but it doesn't mean nothing. Right, Dan? Yeah. So I think this might be one of those training camp battles that we didn't necessarily talk about after the Giants signed Bobby McCain. Nick McLeod might realistically be the starting safety opposite of Xavier McKinney. And I think a lot of that will be determined throughout training camp and preseason. And I still think like, cause Jerome Henderson even confirmed this to us today, Nick, it's like, there's going to be more so than a lot of other teams. He's like, it's, it's not, he said, even say, even said, this is not the case for every team. Sometimes you have that one slot guy who can match up against any single kind of slot, the big slot, the big tight end, the, you know, or the small tight end, the big receiver, the shifty receiver. But he's like in a lot of teams and maybe for our team, there's going to be just matchup based decisions in the slot. Cause Gordo Flott was first team slot again today, but that was discussed with Henderson and, and you know, he didn't confirm that he's their slot. He even said, we trust Nick McLeod to play over the slot, and that may be something he will do. Bobby McCain has in the past been potentially played over the slot, and maybe that could be something he does as well. So there's like multiple different options. Obviously, we saw late in the season Xavier McKinney did that a lot. He did that with TJ Hawkinson in the in the in, in the Minnesota Vikings game. So in the playoff game. So just an interesting mix of guys kind of rotating in and out of the slot, though. It was notable, and I want to say it again, that Cordo Flot did get first team slot reps again. So definitely something we want to see. We know this coaching staff is going to operate within a meritocracy type of approach, but if they could have their druthers, you would imagine Cordell Flott would be their starting slot, right? Like you spent a day two pick on this individual in last year's draft, not this past draft. You want him to earn that starting role and seize that. Now he has to do that. I think if Nick McLeod, if they believe Nick McLeod is going to be the better player, they're going to start Nick McLeod. But if everything is equal and they could pick somebody, wouldn't you have to say, Dan, that it would be Flott? Yeah, that's what he's drafted for. He has the length, I believe, to match up against more guys. I also think he has the quickness and that a click and close ability. I would agree with you there. You know, if we hit the ceiling, if the Giants hit the ceiling, it is with Flot in the slot. No pun intended. Pun intended. 
Yeah, pun intended. Micah McFadden was playing next to Bobby Okereke today because Jared Davis was inside rehabbing. Uh, so that was an interesting note. I thought one thing I mentioned earlier that we that we didn't touch on that maybe we'll expand on now is Ben Bredesen, first team center today. Josh Azudu, back in the installs, first team left guard. John Michael Schmitz then got a few first team reps with Bredesen moving over to left guard. So they kind of mixed and matched there, but the majority was Bredesen at center, Azudu at left guard. Michael Schmidt, a JMS with the second team. And then when JMS got his first team reps, Bredesen was the left guard. I think Bobby Johnson and, and Brian Dable, Mike Kafka, they're just playing with different types of rotations right now. I don't think there's really a lot to read into. John Michael Schmitz is going to be the starter on day one in week one. But what if Josh Zudu is a left guard and John Michael Schmitz is hurt and Ben Bredesen got a kick over? I think that's more so what they're doing right now. Good point. Um, let's talk about some back end roster guys too. Nick Troy Brown, the rookie who might have a shot to make the team at linebacker had an interception against a tryout player, which is Jacob Eason. Um, that was a pass that deflected off of Jalen Hyatt. That kind of just shows you where Hyatt is right now in the pecking order. It's early, but I think they're going to kind of take him along slowly since they have so many other options at receiver. And they are in a lot of ways deferring to the veterans, right? Like Jamison Crowder is getting more run than Jalen Hyatt right now because they brought him in. He's a veteran. He's proven it before, and he's earned that in the league so far. Jalen Hyatt still needs to prove that he's earned that. But just an interesting th note uh, about, the, about that situation. Jacob Easton, remember him out of Washington? That dude was, I think at one point they, they were like, it's that every year it happened to a couple guys the Giants drafted I believe one of them was uh Ryan Nassib another one was Davis Webb but there's always like that one quarterback who like during the pre-draft process they're like uh we hear from sources we hear from NFL teams this guy has a real shot to move into the back end of round one and it's like they end up going on day three Jacob Beeson was that guy of that class I remember we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I remember that too. Just a long list of Washington quarterbacks, right? And unfortunately, Jacob Eason. Do you remember why Jacob Eason is a is a player that makes me smile every time I hear his name? It has something to do with you and I. Uh, is it a Danucci thing? 
No, it is not a Danucci okay. thing. In our dynasty draft with you and all your friends from back home, okay. I had I, I invested a lot of money in Josh Allen, and I was really hurting in a two quarterback lead. And I had Garoppolo, and I had Tyrod Taylor, so those guys were both starters at the time. But everybody else had like four or five quarterbacks, legit quarterbacks, and I was really hurting. Everyone was looking around the league like, "Yo, Nick is screwed." So I had to like take a punt with no money left and brought Jacob Eason in. As hopefully he was going to win the job to be the Colts starting quarterback, and there was going to be an injury and none of that happened and i just cut bait put my head down in shame just surfing me <laughs> And that's how fast things can change in Dynasty, too, because I had a good quarterback situation going, and now it's, like, devastating. I have Kyler Murray, Tom Brady retired. I have Daniel Jones, which is nice, but I had Carson Wentz at the time who had some value. He's done, His value's done. So I'm I'm in a little bit of a tank mode type situation there now. But back to this podcast and back to the Giants minicamp. Uh, some interesting notes from some of the coordinators uh, and from some of the uh, – front office people. Brandon Brown, assistant general manager, described Darren Waller as a problem creator. He said he stretches the defense vertically and laterally, and he makes the other players better, which makes him a quote-unquote force multiplier. Because he's, And he also added that he's a key factor for them in the red zone this year. He absolutely is. Daniel Bellinger was a key factor for them. I think I would be a key factor for them in the red zone. That's just <laughs> how smart these guys are. And especially when we looked at the Giants' red zone percentage over the two years Jason Garrett was here, I think they were like 32nd and 31st, similar to their yards per game and their points per game. It was just absolutely devastating. Now with with these minds here and a Darren Waller talent, geez, man, that's that's a great recipe for success. Brown also said something about Deontay Banks I thought was interesting, the Giants' first-round pick. He said he wasn't even on their radar in September, and a scout from the Giants who he didn't mention, but I'd love to know who that scout was, kind of flagged Banks and said, get this guy on your radar. So the staff started grinding film, watching him, setting up meetings with Banks, and that's all part of the process, right? Like, it starts in September. That's late for, uh, you know, this draft class, but they go through this whole process of you watch the film, you see what the scout's telling you he's seeing, you agree, now you're setting up meetings. They said they did a deep dive into him. They did analytics were part of that. Everything they could do on the player starting from September into the point where they drafted him. So I thought that was a really cool look inside the process of drafting, you know, what you do to draft your first round pick. Think about him. He was injured the entire 2021 season with that collarbone right. shoulder injury that he suffered. So it's not too surprising that they weren't, he was not on their radar, but it didn't take long for the Giants to figure out who the hell he was. Yeah, no, it did not take long at all. And I think I get the early feel with Banks, and you could correct me if you, or you could tell me if you see this differently, Nick. I get the early feel that we're not entering another DeAndre Baker situation where they just weren't vetted well, or an Eli Apple situation where the personality just makes them no match. I get the feeling that while he's not much of a talker, DeAndre Banks, he's more of a quiet type. I think he's going to, despite having confidence, which I think we'll see on the field, I think he might be like a quiet type who's a little more like, you know, chirpy in, in, in receivers ears, which I like, but I get the feeling this dude is just all about ball. And I, and I have a good feeling he's going to work out for the giants. I mean, if it doesn't the eggs Benedict that is on Wink Martindale's face after hugging Joe Shane and not getting caught on camera would not look great. You're right about that. He's all not right. vetted. Like he might not work yeah. out from a skill set standpoint. Like right. I think he will, but that's one thing. But if he DeAndre Bakers and he's falling asleep in, in class and he can't adopt oh, or pick up the playbook, that's that's an absolute disaster in that situation. Yeah, and I again, I think it, more so along the lines of that won't be the case. If anything, it would be that just you know it's tough to play corner in the NFL and sometimes guys don't translate. But I don't think that would be the case for him either. 
Sterling Shepard spoke to the media after practice, Nick, and he said he's right on head, right on schedule, if not a little bit ahead of a schedule physically. And his goal remains to be ready for the season. I thought that was awesome here. I know you and I are still big fans of Sterling Shepard from the film we've watched. We can't speak to, well, I know a lot of Giants fans have given up on him. A lot of Giants are, why do we bring this guy back? It's ridiculous. We keep bringing this guy back. But like the film doesn't lie. He's still super effective when he's on the field. Yeah, it's it's just hard to gauge because this is like two. How many games did we have since his last devastating injury? Only a couple, and he had one of the biggest plays earlier in the season with that long touchdown catch against Tennessee to really spark that comeback when the Giants were down. But a couple weeks later, he's injured again, and this one's even more serious than the one that put him out the year prior. But also, man, he had like so many concussion issues as well before that. So there's a lot that goes on with Sterling Shepard. But I love the guy, dude. He's such a precise an intelligent route runner. He's so crisp. He knows where to be. He was Daniel Jones's safety blanket for much of Daniel Jones's early turbulent career. And I think he was one of the only reliable weapons that Daniel Jones had throughout that, despite the fact that he had all those injuries, which is not really congruent with my previous statement. Yeah. And in addition to all that, you can see some other aspects of his game traits wise that are super impressive. Still, even this late in his career, like the fact that he doesn't drop a lot of passes. He's a really short handed target for Daniel Jones. The fact that he can kind of freelance and nuance and have awareness to do things like that first week we saw against Tennessee, where he kind of in some ways didn't freelance that route, but found a way to get open vertically a little unconventional and present himself to Daniel Jones, where Jones kind of just put the ball up there and Shepard can make a play on it. So you think about all of those things he does well and the toughness catches too like part of him not dropping passes is every time he's put in a position where he doesn't have that much space between him and the defensive back he still holds on to the football despite taking these big hits so i just feel like he's still one of the better players when healthy on the roster so i'm just happy to bring him back it's like a vet min type deal like they're not allocating any cap space to him to me it's just pure upside play where they can release him if they really need to or if he gets injured again and i think they would look to do that but it would be amicable like Sterling Shepard knows the deal right now. And I think one reason why the Giants brought him back was to do him a solid so he can train and he can rehab on the roster for the New York Giants. And he's not just off having to do it on his own with the injury and just get an injury settlement, which is honestly something that I respect about the New York Giants right now where they are with their right. current roster. Yep, completely agree with you on that. One interesting note, uh, shout out to Bobby Skinner who put this out there uh, Listen, in listening to the uh, defensive line coach Andre Pat- Patterson interview. He said, right, according to what Patterson said, Patterson said Ryder Anderson is up from 282 pounds last year to 305 pounds this season. He'll be making the attempt to convert from edge last year uh, to maybe an interior defensive line position with the Giants. That'll be interesting to see, but I think that could give him potential to kind of make his case to make the back end of this roster. He'll just be someone I have an eye on. I keep an eye on. Edge. He wasn't really an edge last yeah, year. He edge, played well, a lot yeah. for technique, and he was kind of just somebody who spelled the base defense. And he had some flashes too. Undrafted guy. He was one of the players who wasn't signed as an undrafted free agent, but was brought in for a workout and ended up earning his way onto the roster. That's not something that happens that often. So he really started from the bottom. Now he's here. I just think the Giants adding Ashawn Robinson and, and and Nacho and a lot of these players. It really kind of affects his ability to make this roster, but he has a unique body type. And if he can continue to develop, maybe the Giants will try to squeeze him in. I don't really know if there's a spot for him, but he will have a home on the practice squad if no one else claims him. And that's a good point. Like adding in Nacho, adding in Ashawn makes it more difficult to see the path maybe from to make the roster. But I do get the feel, Nick, that the Giants are going to be one of those teams that has probably more defensive linemen on their final 53 than than 
not or more than the rest of the NFL. Just listening to Joe Shane, his thoughts on last season, yeah. thoughts on really what went wrong toward the end of the year with just that lack of depth on the defensive line. I feel like he's going to do everything in his power to kind of make sure that's not the case again this year. Same thing happened really with receivers. Giants had so many injuries at that position, and I know they got lucky. They hit lightning in a bottle with Isaiah Hodges, but if that doesn't happen, like they would have been in a really bad spot at receiver as well last season. And also, like if Darius Slayton doesn't evolve into a player that, let's be honest about the situation, he was buried on the depth chart from the new regime at the beginning of the last season and kind of worked his way and proved he, he belonged to be playing. But if that doesn't happen too, they would have been in a bad spot there too. And those are both the positions where they just added a ton of talent to receiver interior defensive line. So I wouldn't be shocked if Ryder Anderson has a really good training camp that he can make the roster just for that depth standpoint. But it's a good point you made about them kind of the competition being much higher this year. And if he could be an interior pass rusher as like a one technique or a two eye technique, and then also play the four tech and the five tech and the four eye tech on those base type of situations. Look, players like Jihad Ward and Nick McLeod add a lot of value to your team because they're being cross-trained at multiple positions and they can step in and execute those assignments well. Like Nick McLeod playing safety and being able to play slot and you can kick him outside, that, that gives your defense a lot of flexibility when injuries start to happen throughout the season. Same with Jihad Ward who plays edge, but we also know on passing downs he can get kicked inside a little bit. So I think those players can maybe allow you to squeak players like Ryder Anderson onto the roster, but I, I don't know, man. You have a lot of receivers you got to bring in. You only yeah. have a finite amount of spots true good point some quotes from jerome henderson i didn't get to earlier he said uh between you know mccain and mcleod they'll give us versatility that allows us to have maximum flexibility in our matchup he says mcleod is big physical fast versatile he can be a safety for us who covers the slot right now he is a safety we're working him there he was on dime last year though and it was kind of similar so we're trying this out absolutely i mean i just i just said that and i didn't see it in the notes if i'm going to be honest but I mean, think about it. Like guys like Bobby McCain and Nick McLeod, they could just do so many different things for you. This is why Wink Martindale calls this defense a positionless defense. And we saw how he called it last year. What, 10% quarter personnel, which was <laughs> like 9% more than everybody else in the NFL. I mean, this is what <laughs> Wink Martindale does. That felt a little bit based. Uh, it felt a little bit not as much by design and more like necessity because the linebacker situation was so dire. And hopefully this year it I, won't be as that. Yeah, go ahead. I agree, but remember when we talked to Ken McCusick and also just doing my own film study, my independent film study of the Ravens, they had just so many weird packages and it was based on the personnel. Yes, but they had like five, I think, outside linebackers on the field at once, yeah. like six, I think one time, like Ken McCusick was telling us, we're like, dude, that is wild, but that's just how Wink Martindale calls his, his defense. He's going to cater it and curtail it to his personnel, but at the same time, he's going to use it for the situations and he's going to use every last defensive body he can. The only ones that he doesn't on this roster are purely special teams guys like Carter Coughlin and Cam Brown. Yeah, you're right about that. And even Coughlin, uh, by the way, made made a couple plays today that caught attention. Uh, I got one thing from Drew Wilkins that stood out to me, and it leads to something I wanted to discuss. He said, Aziz Ojolari is moving around really well so far. He worked hard in the offseason, did a lot well last year, and had one of the highest sacks for pass rush last year. But he said it's not all about sacks. We look at we don't just look at sacks. We look at pressure rate. He said he's very healthy now, and I'm excited about him. And I just want to make this point, Nick, and I know I've made it in the past, but I'm making it again because it just bothers me so much. People, fans are so quick to refer, and I'll see it again in the comments. I see it every time I tweet about him in the replies. They're so quick to refer to players as injury prone, which to me is like up there for the one of the biggest fallacies fans still have about football, believing that guys are injury prone when the only thing they're using to make that assertion is one, an incredibly small sample size, 
when we know that that's not a good thing to base things off of. And two recency bias, right? So Frank Gore at one point was labeled injury prone. That's how ridiculous this is. Evan Ingram was labeled. They were going into Evan Ingram's last season, the Giants. Everyone's like, yeah, maybe he can break out in this new. And we, you know, we missed that one, missed the boat there. We thought maybe he could break out that final year, very potentially. It's like, maybe he can break out, but he's always injured. He's just going to get injured again. He's always injured. And it's like, no, actually, Evan Ingram's now played two full seasons in a row. And Aziz Ojolari last year, it's like, is he injury prone or did he just fall and land really weird in that joint practice on his, uh, you know, what was it? it was the calf injury, right? He landed yeah. really weird on the calf. It's a nagging injury, the calf. Probably the reality of the situation was this thing ain't going to heal for eight months, but you're not going to have eight months to work with. You yeah. need to get back for the season. So let's rest and rehab. Let's do everything we can to get back on it. But with doing so, we know, and the doctors are even admitting to us, there's a good chance of risk of re-injury. And so he does re-injure it. And then he has to play through that again. It's like all that wouldn't have happened if one lucky thing, one unfortunate thing didn't happen where he just lands weird and it's a weird landing that could have happened to Kayvon. That could happen to Dexter. That could happen to any of these dudes, a bad landing. Are they now injury prone? No, it's just random luck. It's a random bad landing. So I don't buy into your crap about him being injury prone at all. Anyone who says that, I think I'm very excited about Aziz Ojolari. He's one of the players I'm most excited for, for the reason that expectations are so low based on basically nothing but a bad luck fall onto his calf. I think there's compounding factors, though, because I agree with your assessment of the calf, but mm -hmm. this is also somebody who failed to pick 50 because of a possible degenerative knee issue, according to reports. I'm not a doctor. I haven't seen any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. but according to reports, he had a chronic knee issue. Now, is that chronic knee issue have anything to do with the fact that he had a calf injury? Maybe not, but our sample size is pretty small here with Aziz Ojolari. He only has two years. One of them, he spent injured most of it, and he fell in the draft because of a knee issue. I agree that I don't know if we should just say he's injury prone. We can't expect anything from him, but I also don't think it's ridiculous for fans to be like, look, he has been injured one out of two years. And he also fell in the draft before that for those compounding factors. I at least err with the side of caution. I think that's the way I approach it. And I think that's a logical and reasonable way to approach a personal. That is a very logical, reasonable way to approach it. And I have the same approach, but I just maybe went about talking about it in a different way, because I think it's fair to say until he proves it, I'm not going to believe it. That's okay. But that's different than saying there's no chance of it happening because he's injury prone like it's good not, when he's yeah. on the field but he's just going to get injured i see a lot of he's just going to get injured in four weeks or he's just going to get injured in x amount of time that to me is where you lose me because maybe you can be okay i'm okay with you just saying you know what until he proves it i'm just going to be cautious about it but that's different than saying he's definitely getting injured because then of it's course. just like is he definitely injured? And I also think, like, what's more important to focus on here, right? Like, the fact that he was injured all of last, not all of last year, for large chunks of last year with that weird calf injury that reoccurred, or the fact that the tape showed a dude who might have taken a step forward with his Definitely. edge band. I think I'm going to focus on that because guess what? The edge band is here to stay. <laughs> what he showed as a pass rusher and what he developed, everything he, he added to his pass rush repertoire, including that edge band, is definitely going to show up this year unless he gets hurt. The injury is not a definite to show up. There is a good chance in my mind that he doesn't get injured. There's a good chance Daniel Jones doesn't get injured. There's a good chance Kevin, there's a good chance everyone doesn't get injured. There's also a good chance they get injured. Who knows? It's random luck, but like not for everyone. Obviously, there's the Oda, there's people who have reoccurring injuries, but he's not at that point yet, right? Like it's not like this calf has been bothering him back to his time, dating back to his days at Georgia, and then it bothered him in year yeah. one. He had the knee, the the quote unquote knee issues that we didn't really see, but we heard about, but not the calf stuff. So it's just like, I'd rather focus on the positive on not just the positives, but like something I know will be there versus something I don't know will be there. Kayvon Thibodeau was also talked about when it comes to Drew Wilkins. And I'm going to bring this back to Aziz Ojolari. So I'm not yep. pivoting off the subject. 
But he said Kayvon Thibodeau has a very humble approach to his game, and he's really reflecting on what he did in year one to kind of grow in year two. In the past 10 weeks, he's been putting in very hard work, which is the exact opposite of what we heard about Kayvon Thibodeau leading <laughs> up to the draft, which I'm starting to think Joe Shane was just putting those narratives out there to Daniel Jeremiah and Todd McShay and whoever else to allow Kayvon Thibodeau to fall to the Giants. I'm very excited about Kayvon Thibodeau and his prospects here as a New York Giant. But I got to say this too, man, because you brought up Aziz Ojolari, and you're right. I feel like the expectations for Aziz Ojolari they're quite low right now, but the ceiling for Aziz Ojolari, I don't know who has a higher ceiling, but I wouldn't be shocked if Aziz Ojolari ends up having more pressures and more sacks than Kayvon Thibodeau. Maybe Kayvon Thibodeau is a better overall player heading into his second year, but if Aziz Ojolari can stay healthy for his third year with what we saw last year, I felt like he was more explosive and I felt like he was a lot more flexible and his ability to mm. win high side is superior than Kayvon Thibodeau. Now, it's a lot more to being a pass rusher than just winning high side, but that's still really important because once you start beating tackles high side, they're going to start compensating for that, and they're going to leave alleys for you to beat them to right. the inside and beat through the chest. Now, Aziz Ojolari isn't as powerful as Kayvon Thibodeau, but we didn't know we put on some bulk last year. Remember, we talked about that a lot throughout training camp. I think he put on like 10 or 15 pounds. We didn't really see that uh, really materialize, I guess, in his game. But Dan, would you be shocked if Aziz Ojolari ends up having more statistical success than a Kayvon Thibodeau in terms of rushing the passer. Cause I would not, not only would I not be shocked, I think a, a fair strong case could be made that he's more likely to have more sacks and more statistical pressures in the passing game than Kayvon Thibodeau this year. No knock on Kayvon. That's not a knock on Kayvon. It's easier to win when you have edge bend around the edge. It's easier to win like that in the high side, though. I will say this with regards to that. It's probably going to be close because I think there's a chance that both of like both of them still have, I don't want to say room to grow, but they can get much better with their counter moves. And that's kind of probably going to decide ultimately like who ends up being the better pass rusher long-term for the giants, I would guess. And I also think like we saw with the, with Aiden Hutchinson last year, who doesn't really have the Zizo Jolari edge bend we're talking about that. Like there's other ways to win. Like Aiden Hutchinson is just really good. And same thing that Frank Clark does uh, really well. I just like understanding and reading the snap count and getting that extra like half second jump. That's something we saw a few times with Kayvon Thibodeau as well in the Washington game and the Baltimore game. So like if Kayvon Thibodeau gets even better at kind of timing the snap and getting that quick jump off the side, he could also then get just win high side just by, you know, having that extra half step on the, the offensive tackle as well. I talked about this on another podcast and Dan, I think it's important Four sacks for Kayvon Thibodeau. Two of them were unblocked. Now he took advantage of a situation that was advantageous. Excellent. Two of them were game-changing sacks that may have resulted in wins for the New York Giants. Right. The one sack was against, I think, Charles Leno Jr. Uh, of the Washington Commanders. He beat Charles Leno Jr. around the edge, sacked the quarterback, ended up getting a touchdown. The only touchdown that was scored by the New York Giants that day. The offense didn't score one. Remember, they tied two weeks prior to that against Washington. And the other one was before that sack, his first ever NFL sack was to seal a victory against the Baltimore Ravens where he beat, I think it was um, the guy who used to play center for them, Mechry or Mechai, I think mm -hmm. his name is. But he's still a solid tackle, but he beat him around the edge and then he held Lamar Jackson back. The thing I like about Kayvon Thibodeau there's so much growth potential, right? But he's really smart. And I'm not saying that Aziz Ojolari isn't smart, but I think Aziz Ojolari's pass rushing plan so far has been, I am more athletic than you, and I'm going to beat you with my speed, explosive, and my bend around your edge. Whereas Kayvon Thibodeau, he can do that. He's not nearly as bendy, in my opinion, as Aziz Ojolari, but I just see a... a intelligence factor and a ability to adapt and ability to take advantage of tendencies within Kayvon's game that we saw in his rookie season. That is only going to improve. And that's one of the primary reasons why I'm really excited about this player heading into year two.
Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. And I think, you know, that we've, we've seen that on the film and we've seen that when listening to him and, and, and discussing uh, kind of, you know, which 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 players we think have the best chance to make a breakout this year. And that's the one thing I'm excited about most this year. It's not even just like the development of this offense in year two, Daniel Jones, which things I am excited about, too. But the receivers being deeper, Darren Waller, it's that D-line, man. It's that combination of the potential we have with a healthy Leonard Williams, a healthy Aziz Ojolari, and a healthy Kayvon Dibodeau, who literally at all points of last season, at, at some point of last season, all were injured. Like, Kayvon Dibodeau missed the first four games. As we talk about his four-sack total. Well, he missed some time, too. Aziz Ojolari missed a ton of time as well. And obviously, Leonard Williams was playing through a stinger that really limited him. If those four can stay healthy and we get lucky a little bit on that health front, that's the core. That's to me is the part of this team that takes the biggest jump and turns the Giants into more of a, uh, you know, more of a potential Super Bowl contender. I know we're deviating a little bit from minicamp, but I think this is important. When is the last time the New York Giants had a defensive player like Dexter Lawrence? Keith Hamilton was somewhat close, but not really. He was just more of like a three tech penetrator. And he was strong, too, at the point of attack. I, yeah. I, I don't know if I, there really hasn't been anyone like him. There really hasn't been anybody yeah. like Dexter Lawrence, a 340 plus pounder who good luck centers occupying just him. Yeah. We've seen him terrorize centers. And now if you insert those healthy pieces around him, that's your four man pass rush. You can drop everybody else into coverage. You want to play too high? Cool. We'll just rush four. And guess what? You have Dexter Lawrence, Leonard Williams, Aziz Ojolari, and Kayvon Thibodeau. If those three can stay, those four can stay healthy and they could take the necessary jump, the jump that we believe they will take, not even an incredible one, just incremental jumps. The Giants pass rush could be one of the best in the league, especially yeah. when it's being schemed by Dominic Martindale. And that's something that I don't feel like you hear around national media. We hear a lot about Saquon Barkley right now, which is understandable. You hear a lot about Daniel Jones because he got paid, but this defensive front is legit and they just upgraded their secondary as well. This defense could be a force this season. Yeah, it really can be. Like I look around the NFL, you the, the pro football focus themselves ranked the Giants interior defensive line as the best in the NFL going into this season. And there's still a lot of uncertainty with regards to the projections from the national media, at least when with Kayvon Thibodeau and Aziz Ojolari, but we've seen flashes of what they can potentially do if they're healthy. So those are just added pieces to the puzzle. And I don't think we've even seen the full extent of what Leonard Williams and Dexter Lawrence can do together with if they're both fully healthy. And I think even back to last year, back to your Lawrence point, it's like, Except for the one per player he matched up against, who's literally a generational player at his position. And I know that gets thrown around a lot, the word generational, but, and it's mostly BS when people use it. But with Jason Kelsey, it's not BS. He's a generational center. There's not going to be, that happens once in every generation. There's a player like Jason Kelsey. But with the reception for that, I don't really think there were any centers who I watched the game when Dexter Lawrence play, you know, we watched the film and we we're like, Dexter Lawrence was like negated or Dexter Lawrence was kind of neutralized in that game. So it's like going into this year, I don't know who, I don't really know who other than Kelsey is going to stop him. Neither do I. And Siamalu was also helping on that. It wasn't like always yeah, a one-on-one. -on -one right. one -on -one, yeah. Which is kind of crazy too. And I guess this is like a styles makes fights type of argument just to bring the sweet science into this a little bit. But I remember Dalvin Tomlinson like really getting the best of Jason Kelsey when he was here. But I don't necessarily see that too much with Dexter Lawrence. So I think there is, he's not infallible, Jason Kelsey. He's one of the best centers we've seen recently, but there were definitely times where I was like, bro, he is struggling against 94 out there. I remember right. us breaking down the shitty New York Giants. It was depressing. So we tried to find the little pieces of happiness that we could get. And I remember Dalvin Tomlinson being one of those players and him exploiting the matchup. And I wonder how much of that is just like the physics of football because of the leverage battle and how important that is in the trenches with a player like Dalvin Tomlinson, who's just a totally different physically speaking player than and Dexter Lawrence, one guy is six foot, almost six foot five. The other guy's like six foot. And we're talking yeah. about a center and Jason Kelsey is what six foot. 
maybe like maybe some people's like, what is he, five eleven, six foot? Like, a, he's I got he's six six foot. I don't think yeah. he's is he in the sixes? Okay, I thought he was like six. I would foot. imagine. I don't think yeah. there's many offensive linemen in the league. Yeah, that are under six, but I don't yeah, think he's too far over six. So it's like it, maybe that was a factor. We won't know, but yeah, definitely an interesting point because I do remember that with Dalvin Thompson as well, who just had great film for the Giants, but not not the same as Dexter Lawrence. Even at his best, Dalvin Thompson oh, yeah. wasn't doing what Lawrence was doing last year. Like you said, no one's really done that. We've always said on this podcast, at least, or at least I've definitely maintained that Dexter Lawrence always had the highest ceiling of the three, and that included Leonard Williams. Right. I don't think Dalvin Tomlinson is the same type of player, but he was just an excellent run defender who really knew how to manipulate leverage, and that yep. was such an important part of playing defensive line. Still does. He still does know that. All right. Anyway, I think that's all we have for today on the OTA's minicamp, uh, or the wrapping up minicamp day one. Stay tuned, Big Blue Banter. We're going to be back at you tomorrow, right? Recapping anything that is interesting from tomorrow's minicamp. Uh, and then once we turn the page on minicamp, we will be discussing some interesting concepts that we've brought up on previous shows. Uh, just some off-season content coming up with the next uh, over the next six weeks before training camp. So thanks again for tuning in. If you want to help grow the show, support the show, hit the like button on this video. That's first and foremost. Subscribe, hit auto subscribe, get our videos. Uh, hit that notification buddy to get our button to get our videos. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and or Spotify, both even better. Set up auto download. These are just the four things that we'll ask. And if you do all those things, you'll help us grow. So thank you so much. If you do do that, take the time to do that. Otherwise, have a great rest of your week and we will talk to you soon.